Aviation is changing thanks to the emergence of new types of manned and unmanned aircraft. NASA's Advanced Air Mobility Mission seeks, in its words, to help emerging aviation markets operate safely. The program pulls in many public and private partners, and here with a flyover view, NASA's research and test pilot, Garrett Everson. Mr. Everson, good to have you with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. And tell us about the Advanced Air Mobility Mission. What precisely is NASA doing here? Yeah, so we're working with with industry and and teams of NASA researchers to advance the state of advanced air mobility. So specifically, I'm the partner demo team technical lead within our national campaign, and I oversee a a variety of tactical teams, each working with a different industry partner to advance certain subject areas that are very important to the state of advanced air, air mobility overall. So that's one component, and I have a counterpart that works on a program called Integration of Automated Systems. And that is working with uh, teams of NASA researchers and other federal partners to develop the automation algorithms that we'll use to provide high autonomy for these vehicles to navigate the highways and byways of the national airspace system. So that's largely what we do under the uh, under the national campaign. So in the uh, portfolio of teams that I work with, we work with one partner that's developing UAM, urban air mobility representative approaches to build those because they're quite a bit different than the uh, traditional or legacy approaches that, you know, a Southwest 737 would fly into Reagan National to build those, evaluate those and, and measure their performance across a variety of performance parameters. We have another part team that's working on detect and avoid that's making sure that highly autonomous vehicles can navigate the uh, highways and byways of the national airspace and provide strategic and, and tactical conflict avoidance with other air airborne aircraft that happen to be out there. Because if these are eventually unmanned and there's a high degree sure. of autonomy, we need to provide collision avoidance. That so whole idea of autonomy, that's an important distinction to make from remotely piloted. Because yes. it could be that if it's done right, autonomous would be even safer than remote piloting. It can be. It can be. The goal is to have them highly automated. And some of our partners have a vision where there's no pilot involved. Uh, and there you know, would be a uh, individual monitoring from a console and a remote station, but not so much piloting. The aircraft is making decisions on its own. And that is long-range type things. And then there's other aircraft that are highly automated with, with different control schemes and you know, collision avoidance packages to help uh, reduce the amount of training required and improve safety. So that's a major component of what we do. Autonomy is definitely a focus area across AAM within our industry and government partners and certainly within NASA. In fact, that's a major component of the integration of automated systems team. And is one of the challenges the fact that what is considered under the advanced air mobility, these delivery packages or air taxis and this kind of thing, are an order of magnitude slower than, say, commercial jets, and then you've got general aviation, which is sort of in between speed-wise and the differential and speed and capability. Is that one of the challenges here? Definitely. It's one of the challenges. So it's definitely a niche market to provide passenger transportation or package delivery from rural areas into urban environments or underserved markets into markets uh, that, that have typical aircraft. So these aircraft, as you noted, fly slower and they also fly at a lower altitude. Plus, the vision is to have them highly automated. So how to develop the infrastructure and uh, whether it's vertiports, different routes through the national airspace to allow these aircraft go from point A to point B in a highly autonomous aircraft and having them be interoperable with the other aircraft that are out there. And one important point is is the you know energy state of energy density of the batteries. Uh, these aircraft don't have the ability to loiter for 45 minutes should Reagan National have a ground delay for whatever reason. 
So we need to make sure they can all get from point A to point B safely, go to an alternate and measure the demand capacity from all the different places in a well-orchestrated sort of way. So I think if the vision were all works out, you know, by the end of the decade, it'll be a well-choreographed system that works seamlessly. So we're a long sure. ways off for that. But that's what our goal is, is to work with industry partners and other government partners to develop that whole ecosystem and make it all work out. Because the vision of personal mobility and flying cars and helmets with helicopters on them and this and that and the other bubbles that take i mean that jetson type of idea goes back 60 75 years what is the basis for thinking that now it's a reality i think it's uh, we can make the electric aircraft the distributed propulsion systems uh, similar to what you see on the jetsons that's the analogy everyone likes to use but it's developing the ecosystem so that's what we're looking at we're not looking at it just the vehicle and just the electric motors so some nasa programs are focused on that particular area but we're going to looking at the ecosystem as a whole and that is what hasn't traditionally existed and the technology hasn't been available but we're now starting to see that technology become available whether it's the batteries whether it's the collision avoidance sensor packages and all of the FAA surveillance radars that play into this whole system. There's a ton of moving parts. And we have some pretty detailed conversations with all of our partners to build that ecosystem, pull it all together in a sort of way that we can make the Jetsons become a reality. We're speaking with Garrett Everson. He's a partner demonstration lead for NASA's Advanced Air Mobility Mission National Campaign. He's also a research and test pilot and experienced flyer yourself. And Tell us about the programmatic aspects of this. Who are some of the federal partners in the air mobility mission? Absolutely. So we uh, a big one is the FAA. Uh, they're, they're tasked to oversee uh, the certification of these new aircraft. The criteria to certify them are, don't quite exist, so that's under their portfolio. But we are here to work with the FAA to do unique testing and leverage each other's processes to really advance the state of the in- industry. So. The FAA is one of them. We also work with the Department of Transportation. They have unique test setups and test ranges that we leverage and take advantage of. And another big one is the Department of Defense. Uh, we have a, a great relationship with certain DOD organizations. One is, uh, is is Agility Prime with the Air Force, where we're leveraging each other's test programs and test campaigns to, in a synergistic sort of way, to achieve similar goals. Now, uh, they are looking at eVTOL type aircraft and AAM from a mill use case perspective, and we're looking at it from a civil use case perspective. So they're very eager to see if we can use these aircraft. They're extremely quiet. We get a small team of special ops personnel from point A to point B into an area and then out of an area seamlessly. And that clearly has uh, overlapping objectives with the civil use case, just going from point A to point B. So combining our research programs reduces the cost of the taxpayer and really we think will allow us to advance the state of the industry so much quicker. So in fact, we're, we're slated to do some interesting testing with, with the Air Force at Edwards Air Force Base starting this fall, unmanned and then maybe even going manned. So we have some very exciting times ahead working with these strategic government partners. And on the industry side, I'm imagining that there is a almost like the equivalent of what's happening in electric cars. There is this burgeoning industry of startups Big trying to get into this. Absolutely. And yeah, many in Silicon Valley, a ton of, uh, of really brilliant people. That's one of the aspects that I love about this job is working with so many smart people that are just advancing this technology rapidly so fast that, you know, on the regulatory side, it can be hard to keep up. That's why we're partnering with DOD and the, and the FA and having our best experts come in and say, how do we make this become a reality? Um, but uh, yeah, definitely emerging technologies in terms of the uh, the sensor packages, the batteries, the uh, the automation systems to make these aircraft fly seamlessly in an almost autonomous sort of way. So very cool stuff. 
And as you know, the nation looks at autonomy for ground vehicles, and that's not going that well, actually. It's much slower and much more complex than people, even their proponents, envisioned. What about the challenges for really software in above ground in the air? Is that maybe closer to something we can understand and rely on, say, versus It's a work ground? in progress, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. The software has to be certified, validated, and verified, and go through a very rigorous process that the automotive industry typically doesn't do. It's tremendously expensive, and the stakes are so much higher in the air, obviously. So we want to make sure the software is well vetted and it meets certain design criteria. So how do you take highly autonomous systems, neural nets, and complex software and that's been designed properly and then verify it and validate it? That's a, that's a very difficult path, and we're trying to wrap our arms around that right now, working with the FAA in industry, because that's where the industry is going, and we want to make sure we can do that well, but maintain high safety standards for aviation. So that that's the goal, and it's kind of a work in progress. And as a pilot yourself, and you have piloted the fastest and most advanced Navy fighters, as well as some slower types of planes and prop transports and so forth, what's your take on that whole idea of unmanned autonomous flight? Does it make you, like, worry or it doesn't make me worry i think it's a matter of getting the technology to the point where it works and you know it works seamlessly and we have the safety data to prove it but also working with the public for you know in terms of community acceptance making sure that this is safe and it's well vetted and the public is comfortable with it and community acceptance is actually a huge part of our program but for me that's what i find fascinating is is the tech that's going to get us to that point i know industry is tremendously interested in reducing the number of pilots maybe dropping three pilots down to two or even two down to one with a pilot in a remote station so we're not just going to suddenly go unmanned boom here we are what do you think of this Um, it's going to be a phased in approach but as a pilot, I think that is the future, and I really like the tech behind it. In fact, I was, as you know, as noted, I was a test pilot for the Navy flying F-14s and F-18s. Uh, in my first job getting out, I worked for a large defense contractor as a test pilot on an unmanned program designed to land a uh, unmanned aircraft on an aircraft carrier. And the Navy was very interested that in the time to integrate unmanned aircraft in the carrier environment. That's happening even as we speak. It is, yes. Still. Yes. So this was a technology demonstrator that I worked on, but now there's other aircraft that they're developing to inter- uh, be interoperable in the carrier environment, do shipboard landings and takeoffs, and provide in-flight refueling and do other missions. So that's that's becoming a reality, but that's where the tech is going, and that's what I find fascinating. So it doesn't scare me, but I, I embrace it and want to see how we can do all of that to benefit the public. And it strikes me that NASA's Advanced Air Mobility Mission really doesn't have an endpoint because this could develop forever. Maybe it'll become air mobility mission because advanced will just be the routine, but I don't see an endpoint to a program like this. No, uh, and that's what's very cool about it. Um, it's just we, we see dates of you know the late 2020s, 2032 in our roadmap. So this isn't something such as we're just going to work with you know a contractor, build an electric vehicle, and make it fly from point A to point B, and we're done. Developing that whole ecosystem is going to be a build-up approach for certain phases to get to the point where you have this you know well-choreographed ecosystem that works seamlessly. That's years away. So just working with you know teams of our most brilliant people, whether it's industry or other government agencies, is what I find fascinating. But yeah, it's a rare opportunity to participate in such a program that's going to do so much over a long period of time. Usually the spectrum, you know, in terms of the schedule is is a lot smaller, you know, six months maybe, or, you know, a few years. In fact, in my prior life, when I did science missions for NASA as a test pilot, you know, we do a mission that would last a year or two, and then that was it. So this is much different working over a decade to advance the state of the industry. So the day will come when the average American will have a pizza delivered by an autonomous vehicle, then step into one to fly to the airport, and then go somewhere. That's the vision. 
Yep. Step into and step into uh, an autonomous vehicle to get to the airport. And we have partners that are doing that right now, not on manned, they're manned, but uh, trying to provide passengers from different areas of, of Manhattan into the three surrounding airports at, at a reasonable cost. And that's the, a major factor. So how do we reduce the cost so that it's no more than a taxi fare or an Uber fare that you're kind of used to today? So we're not quite there yet, but but that's the vision. And who cares what's going on on the GW Parkway? Garrett Everson is a, <laughs> exactly. is a partner demonstration lead for NASA's Advanced Air Mobility Mission National Campaign. He's also a research and test pilot at NASA's Wallops Flight Facility. Thanks so much for joining me. You bet. Happy to be here, and thanks for the invitation to speak. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Fly the Federal Drive. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking Earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And, David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in, your, um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners, And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself 
you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that, and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it, and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released. And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward 
the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Susulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with a correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.